and welcome to Word Up, a series of podcasts hosted by Oxford University Press with Helen Prince and guests. In this podcast, the word tickety-boo is going to come up. And the origins of this word are quite uncertain. Chiefly and originally, it's British slang, possibly from an Indo-Aryan language, meaning it's all right, sir. The phrase could have been picked up by British personnel in India before independence. It might also be a corruption from the French, how beautiful you are, adopted in a similar way to the word toodaloo, which is a corruption of tout à l'heure, most likely to have come from World War I Tommies. It could also be an extended version of that's the ticket and possibly influenced by the word that was first seen in the 1920s, Peekaboo. I don't know if you remember, but quite a little while ago, when I was a head of English in Plymouth, you came and spoke to all the heads of English in Plymouth. And I was a fresh-faced, brand-new head of English and hanging on your every word as we do. And you very kindly signed Butterfly Lion for me, which I brought straight home and read to my kids. And it's one of our favourites. And there's a real amazing powerful voice in butterfly line really comes across because you've got the different uh, characters all sort of interacting and we just wondered my kids particularly were saying how does he do that how do you get that real sense of voice captured in your in your writing i think i'm very unself-conscious uh, about it. i think you know for reasons i just said to you i just tell it mm. and sometimes i get into a story I've just done it really with um, a story recently too. I get into a story through uh, memory, some little moment of my own childhood, mm. um, which I'm so close to that um, the language seems to um, be particularly natural because I'm telling a memory. Mm. So at the beginning of the story, as you know, it's about a boy running away from school, which I did, uh, running away from a boarding school in Sussex um, when I was um, seven. And because it was such a huge thing, you don't, you just do not forget it. Because I was running home, I was going to run, I was going to run all the way from Sussex to my home, which was on the Essex coast. Wow. And uh, I was going to go. Um, it was, I was just miserable, like a lot of people yeah. were. But I decided one day to do it. It was a letter from my mother that made me do it. I, I just set off. Um, anyway, it was pouring with rain, and I did get stopped by a lady in the car who took me to her home, and she gave me a sticky bun, yeah. and she started talking to me and, and in a way that was the start of it that was the start of this business and what I was used to with grandmothers was grandmothers and people of that generation telling stories and so quite a lot of my stories in a way the first part is an introduction to get into the main part of the story yes but it, then it becomes part of the story and the more you do it the more you the more you weave the more tightly the plot seems to happen and mm. um, I got help and I think this is really important because I knew uh, I was going to write this story um, because of an, a, a book that I bought in a bookshop in Hay on Why. It was a discovery, and this is really important. Sometimes there are these, sometimes it's memory going way, way back. But sometimes it's something you pick up and think, well, I didn't know that, I didn't know that. And this was a book, I can remember the title to this day, because it was a really long time ago now, it's called The White Lions of Timbavati. And it, I saw it in the window. Bookshop, eh? 
and uh, there were these glorious photographs of white lions on the front. So I went in and, and bought it. It cost me four quid. I remember that very well. It, 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 it was a study of a pride of lions in South Africa, um, which some man had discovered and written a book about it and taken photographs. Mm. And it was full of the most sensational photographs. The text wasn't that interesting to me because it was quite technical about the prides and all the rest of it. But the photographs, I just kept turning a page and I immersed myself really in this pride. And then it happens. And what I love about it, and this is when the writing gets really good, I think it flows, mm. is because there's a magical thing that happens to you. And in this case, I was coming back from London to a place called Westbury in the West Country, as you've come yep. past it. And as you know, you come on the train back to London on the left-hand side, you look up a hill and there's a huge, great white horse. Yeah. So I'm looking at this book of white lions on my lap and I'm looking up at the horse and I just knew then I was going to write a book about a white lion ending up carved in chalk on a great big hillside. I didn't know anything about lions. So I asked someone, and this is one of the lovely things, I, I got lucky. I went to a conference in Dublin. It was uh, getting back in the lift. I'd done my thing and I got back in the lift and I was going to go home. And getting into the lift with me was this exceedingly beautiful woman. And I knew her face. I just, she'd been one of these women of your dreams when you were young. <laughs> I hadn't got a clue she was, but I knew, I absolutely knew I'd been in love with her. Couldn't remember her name. And then I remembered it about the third or fourth floor up. I remembered her name. And it was an actress called Virginia McKenna who'd acted in a film called Born Free. Oh, wow. I'd grown up with this image, really, of English beauty, I suppose. Yeah. And I had to say something. You know, if you're in the lift with someone you've loved all your life, you say stuff. You, know. you do. You take the risk. You take the risk. Exactly that. I said, I think your Born Free Foundation is wonderful. She said, well, that's sweet of you. Thank you. I think she's probably a bit anxious about me. And I got out of the lift and went down there and I was really cross with myself because I, you know, and I'd sort of embarrassed her, I think, by talking about this. And I thought, well, you've got to put this right, put this right. And I, I thought, I'll leave her a book. I've, I, what have I got? What have I got? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I had this book called The Dancing Bear, which is a story about a bear in a cage. And I knew she's really interested about preventing animals from being in cages. Yeah. Signed it, did it, left it in reception and went home. And I got a letter from her about a week later. Oh, so wow. I loved your book about the bear. If you're ever writing a book about a lion, you know who to ask. And so I contacted her, and she was the one who told me so much about Africa. I'd never been to Africa. So this is a part of the book. So I got my memory. I did know where my school was and all the rest. Of it. Yeah. I did know where the chalk, chalk thing was on the hillside. All that was clear, clear, clear. But I'd never been to Africa. So I found that out through her. So I used her eyes. It all became very natural, one thing folding into another. Then the story of the First World War, which is a true story, and I discovered it at a dinner table, someone telling it. And that, I think, if there is some immediacy about the story, some some and it must be because it seems to have gone on being liked for some time now and and I think it must be because it mattered so much to me as I was writing it I did mention earlier on didn't I this business of caring about something yeah the more I wrote that story the more I cared about the boy at yeah. the heart of it the old lady the boy growing up and the soldier all that all that the even the house which um, is so strange and it's got this very strange ending which I love because children always ask, you know, well, what happened? What happened? And I have to say to them, I don't know. <laughs> and that's quite good, isn't yeah. it? You're not putting a full stop and, and wrapping it all up in a, 
in, in a ribbon, you know. And I, I think they that's one of the lovely things about stories is you walk away making up endings yourself, thinking mm. it through yourself. And well, anyway. it's such it's such an evocative book. And now that you've told us that narrative, I can see why. Those those footsteps were yours at the beginning. And what an inc- what an incredible, you know, synergy of opportunity to to be in a lift with that lady and and she was your voice of what lions are and do and and, and I, I know her to this day and we go we do drama things on stage together. It's it, it's a book which has fed and fed and fed over the years. It, it, it's it's extraordinary. And I mean the last book I wrote was it's when you get these little happenings which are completely impossible, you mm-hmm. know, the coincidence. Serendipitous. It's absolutely the last thing I wrote, which is a book, a bizarre book, and it's the most bizarre book I think I've ever written. Um, <laughs> it, it was on it, it was set on an island called Ithaca. And the reason was that two years ago, my wife and myself went to Ithaca pretty well by accident, except, of course, we went there because that was where Homer lived. So it's quite good for writers. And uh, it's quite good because of Odysseus coming back from Troy. So we went there for that, that sort of thing, all the wrong reasons for going anywhere, because there's nothing but a pile of ruins to look at and lovely beaches and stuff. But so anyway, um, we had a really good restful time. And I think it was because I was rested. And this sometimes does happen. Mm. You leave yourself space and time. And this pandemic has been very good for that. Mm. giving you time to not force yourself to do anything, you know, let, allowing things to happen. Anyway, I was lying on the beach there. I it's pebbly. I was lying on one of those lounger things on a tiny little rather remote beach. And we had noticed, Claire and myself, that there was this lady who would come out every afternoon, almost the same time, and walk up and down the beach in a long black dress, as Greek women do. Mm. And she wasn't swimming. She was just walking through the shallows. And we suddenly realised she was picking up plastic. She had made it her job to pick up plastic every single day for an hour or so, getting up and down the beach. And she'd walk in the shallows and walk on the beach and the place would be wonderfully clean of all this. And then we were lying there and talking and she wasn't too far away of us down the shallows and she suddenly beckoned us over. Mm. And we went over and she was holding her hand and it was a flying fish which had been washed up in the shallows and was half dead. Yeah. So we said, it's dying, isn't it? Said, yes, it's dying. She said, they're wonderful, aren't they? She said, and did you know? She said, they talk. <laughs> so I'm thinking, hang on, this is a mad old woman. <laughs> no, no, no. She took her finger and she started stroking the top of the head of this fish. Mm. And I swear to you, as the finger went over the top of the skull, this fish went, ah, ah. So this fish was either singing or talking or whatever. Well, that's incredible. You have to write a story about a Don't you? Well, do you know, I'm listening to you now. I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm in story time. You've captured me. Wow. Well, I need to read, I need to read that one. What's that, what's that story? Well, we just we just um, finished arguing about a title, and I now have one. I think I've won the battle. I hope so. It's it's been called "When Fishes Flew," quite an important beginning of a great poem. Donkey, I think G.K. Chesterton. Yeah. When fishes flew, okay. uh, that's the title, which I love, uh, and it's really the story. What's really been marvelous? It's the same sort of length as Butterfly Lyre, and I rather love writing stories which are entire lifetimes, mm. but but really quite short. And in this case, it's almost the entire history of ancient and modern Greece as lived through the imagination 
of two people, a small girl and her ancient auntie. And it's the revealing of, and I've always loved this, actually, you know, the people in this world, and again, this pandemic has discovered this, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's all part of it. What, what have we discovered more, which we always knew, but we didn't think about it, is that there are a lot of people in this world who are really remarkable, and you never know it. Mm. They, they never show it, they don't brag about it, they don't write about it, they don't know anything about it at all. They just do extraordinary things. Mm. And we know there are millions of these people. You know, most, I mean, we, we had a lovely people down the road, our neighbours, we didn't, didn't know them at all, really. they're just neighbours. And you call them the neighbours, you even forgot their names. Well, during this pandemic, they've turned into the most kind, wonderful people, you know. Mm. And uh, no one again, no one's going to write a book about them. No, they're not, no one's going to put them on the telly. They're just really good people yeah. and interesting people. And they have hidden lives. And what I've done in this story is to tell the hidden story of what to a small girl felt like a, a very sweet, but quite sometimes quite boring great aunt. And it turns out that she's just the most extraordinary uh, woman. And, and, and she has to go, um, this girl, she has to go when she's a teenager to find this great aunt. And it's how it's revealed. And the, the fish uh, turns out to be the, there's a wonderful Greek god called Proteus, who can turn himself into anything he wants. And this fish is, in fact, Proteus. Oh, well, I'm excited to read that. Wow. Have you got a favourite word? Tickety-boo. <laughs> love that. I love tickety-boo. I don't know. I have no idea if it's the right word. I've used it from time to time. And it, I, use, I think what I used it, I used it in a story called The Amazing Story of Adolphus Tips. Mm. And then and there's, an old, there's, there's a mother of an evacuee child who comes down and she always used all tickety-boo, tickety-boo. Everything's tickety-boo. And somehow I love these words, which in the sound of them, the, in the sound of them, there is the meaning. I love that. Yeah, that lovely rhythm and pattern, onomatopoeic. Love it. Yeah. You recently wrote a poem for National Poetry Day Anthology. I wrote an awful lot of poems, actually, while I was on Ithaca too, to go with the Carnival of Animals, um, the piece of music. Yeah. I don't know, I wrote a poem after poem, and I loved it, and we put it on a CD with the wonderful Canny Mason um, family of musicians, and they've done this lovely, lovely CD with um, Olivia Coleman and myself reading these little poems that I wrote, which I really love doing. And I'm not a poet, you know, I was asked to do it by someone who thought I could write poetry. I don't know why he thought that, but. <laughs> oh, I think I know. I think I know why he thought that. <laughs> do you think that there is a, a difference for you when you're writing poetry as, to, as opposed to writing stories? Or is there a similar process that you go through? In my poems, I, I always loved growing up more than anything else in poetry, I love narrative poems. Mm. It's very important to me that a poem has a story. And so what in, in, in this case I did, I think there are about 17, 18 poems about animals, which Saint-Saëns wrote the music around. And I mean, the most famous one is Swan. Um, There's a wonderful piece of music played by a cello. It's stunning, yeah. Yeah, absolutely stunning. So there I am on the beach in Ithaca, and I'm thinking, right, I've got to write a poem about a swan. And so it's a sort of story. I, in each of the poems, I decided I would become the animal in the poem, not stand back and look at it as swan, but I'd be the poem. So in this case, I'll just read it to you. You'll know what I'm talking about. Swan. I am serene. I am silent. I am swan. 
I do not swim, I glide, I do not fly, I float. Air and water are the same to me, you are all the same to me, and I am the swan you want me to be. I will be swan on the lake for all of you. I will preen, I will dance, I will raise me up and beat my wings. I will sing with my wings the sweetest song. I will land impossibly, gracefully. I will arch my neck. I will be beautiful for you. I am beautiful, for I am swan. But beware and take care. Come too close with my family following on, and I can be swift to anger. Then I am swift to be wild, my wild self again. But for now, I am the swan you want me to be speechless listen to my silence so that's what i try to do i make a story i'll make a person of it and i did that with each that's one beautiful. i really love i love doing it and then when you hear shaker kenny mason playing the cello oh, it's wonderful do you know that family have you come across them this, the kenny masons have you, have you, do, do you know who i'm talking about i confess i don't well look them up i will look can. them up yes i They're will a family quite quite extraordinary they are a family of seven children. They are Caribbean in origin. Mm. They, they live in Nottingham. They all went to state schools. And at least two of them were already uh, genius musicians and the rest are brilliant musicians. And this was the first time the family ever got together as a seven to make a CD. And um, it's oh, just... That's a, that's a great story. It's a great story. And the only yeah. time that I've been out of this place was six months ago when we went up to London to record the whole thing. There was a, for three days or two days or whatever. We read our poems, they did that. And it was just the most extraordinary. I had this break in the middle of these lockdowns. So I lived on that, on, on the, and it's not buzz, on the beauty it gave me really of yeah. these people. And I love it when children, you know, do you remember I talked about finding voices when children are young? This yeah. confidence. And what I really loved is they, were, they clearly had, through teachers, just regular teachers at school, and to start with, gone to expensive tutors. This was some wonderful music teacher in a state school mm. who recognised the talent. Mm. The parents fed into it. Um, anyway, look them up on I will. YouTube. See Shaker uh, Kanye Mason playing Swan and other things. It's all there. Brilliant. Thank you for that. I, sh I shall definitely go and have a look. It's fascinating to hear you talk about, you know, such evocative, interesting synergy of art coming together, you know, story and music and poetry and drama and just just such a, a wealth of opportunity for us there, isn't there, in the classroom when we're trying to bring the storyteller out of our young people. Yeah, I think so. And, and for them to realise actually that quite a lot of what it is they like already starts out on paper. You know, every film they've ever watched starts out with some person sitting down there and scribbling away. And yeah. it's all storytelling. You know, we yeah. have the different ways of doing it. Yeah. But the whole business of theatre is interesting at the moment. The fact that our theatres are shut down and people can't go to them. But I think there's a sort of discovery going on in the theatre world that there's an opportunity here to reach, to reach. a whole audience of people yeah, yeah. with what we're doing yeah. now. Absolutely. For a bit, but there certainly rise this phenomenal power now, this outreach for storytelling mm -hmm. through the theatre. I think there might be quite a lot of teachers listening to this podcast, Michael. And I think one of the things we're all quite curious about is about your writing space. 
So where do you write? What does it look like? I read the other day, George Bernard Shaw had a writing pod in the garden that turned so he could always face the sun and always have sunlight. And I've got this romantic image now that as you're in Devon, that you might have something similar. Do you, do you follow the sun in a writing pod? No, but if I'd known about it, I might well have done that. <laughs> At the time I was writing A Butterfly Lion, I think it was almost as I was doing it, I wrote like most writers, right? I sat at a desk mm. um, and bent over it, um, hunched up and, and wrote mm. like so. And I suddenly was getting rid of pains in my wrists and my elbows and my shoulder. And it was giving me quite a lot of chip. Um, and so much so I was thinking about it when I was writing. Mm. And I was lucky enough living down here. And, um, you know, there aren't that many people around in North Devon. But we had tumbled on the place where just down the road from here, there lived um, a rather great poet called Ted Hughes. Yes. Um, and uh, I met him down by the river and we got to know one another. And he became a great supporter of our charity Farms for City Children. Really helped us on. He was a lovely, lovely man. And I got talking to him one day about the fact that I was finding, physically finding writing really quite hard at the time. He said, well, you're doing it all wrong. You're sat there hunched over it. Of course, it's a very unsympathetic man sometimes. He was a dear, dear friend. But when, in fact, you were being a bit silly, he'd tell you so. He said, well, if you will sit hunched up, um, bent over all the time, what do you expect? Stuff's going to go wrong. So I said, well, how do you do it? He said, oh, I have a lectern. I stand at a lectern and write like that. So I'm stood, if you like, balanced properly. And there's the lectern. And... So I thought, fine, so I've got a lectern. If Ted Hughes does that, I'll do that. Um, so I should have known Bernard Shaw. That's why I'm telling you this. So I st stood in front of this lectern, and it was fine for about half an hour, and then my feet started to hurt. And so whatever I did, it seemed to me, it was triggering some other form of mm. um, distraction or pain or whatever. And then, it is interesting, I read a lovely biography of a man called Robert Louis Stevenson, who was my great mentor and whose work I adore mostly because he can turn his hand to anything he can write dark adult novels he can write yarns for children he can write poetry he can write travel books he's just an amazing man and um I saw him I was reading his biography and there was a picture of him a photograph of him yeah. lying on a bed in Samoa not long before his death he may have been ill I don't know but he was lying there on the bed with his knees drawn up in front of him piled up with pillows behind and he's scribbling away. I thought, well, that's good enough at Treasure Island. I'll try that myself. Yeah. So I tried it, and I've done that ever since. Um, and I don't, I, any bed anywhere is fine, but I, it's good just to be stretched out a bit. Yeah. Draw your knees up, and then you can adjust everything. You adjust your knees. You can adjust your, and also big plus, you can go to sleep when you feel like. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I think in these in these days of COVID, we're all feeling quite snuggly at the minute, aren't we? At home with a well, look at me surrounded by blankets to record mm. this. So uh, that's that's really really interesting. Thank you. So apparently, there's a new book coming out this Easter, the Birthday Duck. Yes. Is that set in Nethercott Farm in Devon? Absolutely. This is a what I call a pinched story. It's one of those ones you get told, and the person who tells you hasn't got a clue you're going to use it. It doesn't matter, <laughs> because I think it was quite... It was teacher. I think, I think it was one of those things where uh, I wasn't looking for a story at all. We had a regular thing each week. The kids had come for a week, and one of the days on a Tuesday it used to be, we used to go into Hatherley to the market and take the children to see that side of farming. 
So we have a picnic, we go in by coach and they'd walk all the way back. And while they were in there, they'd look at all the cages where the ducks were, where the chickens were, and they'd look at the cows being sold and the sheep being sold. So that's what we do. Anyway, I was sitting down with these teachers who we get to know rather well over the week. And um, they were exchanging stories about near catastrophes when you take children away. And it was one of those really funny things. It was teachers accepting that they'd made some <laughs> dreadful up or something. It was really lovely. And this guy said, well, I've got a story which you're not going to believe. It's so ridiculous, but it's absolutely true. He said, I took my class. They were year threes, I think, or something, mm. uh, on a coach every year to a Dudley Zoo up near Birmingham. Yeah. And uh, I was just getting on the coach, and this mum came up to me and said, look, I don't, I don't want to say this in front of um, Jim, but the thing is, He's sweet. He's a lovely boy, my son. But he does have a little problem, and I thought I should warn you about this before you took him away. So what's the problem? What's the problem? So, well, he doesn't seem to understand that it's really not a good idea to pick up anything you like and just take it away. He said, when I go shopping, I have to hang onto his hand the whole time. It's a nightmare. <laughs> I'm just telling you, if you do go to this zoo and there is a shop or something like that, just keep an eye on him. Otherwise, he'll come back with his pockets full. And uh, so anyway, they went to the zoo, they had a very good day, they had a picnic out somewhere. They got back on the coach and they were going back down the motorway. This is absolutely true. And a little, little kid came running up to the back and said, sir, 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 Jim's got, Jim's got a penguin in his duffel. <laughs> and he had literally picked up a penguin, oh. stuffed it in his duffel bag. And not the chocolate it. kind, not the biscuit chocolate kind. A real, a real penguin. And they had to turn around and go back. Anyway, it's such a wonderful story. And so I thought, well, I can't do that here in Devon. I'm going to have one of these kids who go to the market and they're always saying how terrible it is, the ducks all shut in the cage. And it, um, that, it does a deal with some man with his pocket money, buys this duck and then has to hide it from everyone, from the teachers and everyone. And it's about how he gets the duck on the coach all the way back to London to give to his grandpa. That's why it's called whatever it is, a birthday, the birthday duck. Birthday duck. Lovely. I'm reminded of that scene in Our Day Out where they're all on the bus and then suddenly they they open their jackets and all the animals from the zoo yeah. jump, <laughs> jump out yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're all told off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, so that's the book that's coming out. Um, I think it's coming out quite soon, I think. Yeah, I think around Easter time. Well, we're all going to keep our eyes open for that one. Michael, it's been an absolute joy and pleasure to have some time with you and talk to you and hear hear your wealth of experience and ideas and fascinating um just just real caliber behind the, the well what's really interesting is that i have to say it's very nice to be speaking to someone in devon and broadcasting to wherever um yeah. and people should know that actually devon is not just full of beaches and moors it is and lovely they are too but actually we have a lot of writers down here too there's someone yeah. called i got a christian live just down the road from that's yeah, it. So yeah. Reward Kipling around the corner. Absolutely. Hotbed. Hotbed of talent. Hotbed of something, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you so, you. so much. It's been Pleasure. a joy. All the best. Bye bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Word Up podcast from Oxford Education. To receive bonus material relevant to the discussion, please visit www.oup.com slash education slash podcasts.